Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, I'm going to read you a series of quotes, and you tell me whence they came. Okay, go. This situation has reached a crisis level. This is a startling reality. Is that the New York Times? <laughs> My diary? <laughs> <laughs> Wolf these, Blitzer's situation room? Do these seem too evergreen? <laughs> yeah, they're kind of they're kind of universally applicable, Jane. <clears throat> the facts set forth before the court portray reactive governance, responses to address a chaotic circumstance of the government's own making. They belie measured and ordered governance. Yeah, that doesn't help. That could still be anything. It really could be. What, do you even remember what measured and ordered governance was like? I don't know. Like back, like measuring, like like for baking, like where you measure things. <laughs> I'm still familiar with that. Dip level and pour. <laughs> <laughs> we could use a little more of that these days. <gasps> what is it, Shane? Tell us. Tell us. These were from the order by Judge Sabra, uh, demanding that children be reunited with their families. Well, I thought it was from a Jeff Flake speech. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cruel. Wow. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the SCOTUS Hearts POTUS edition. I'm Shane Harris, baking reporter. I've it, never baked well. Is it POTUS? SCOTUS loves POTUS, or is it POTUS loves SCOTUS? I think at this it's point It's a mutual today, admiration I think there's event. a lot of mutual affection going on right now. <laughs> I'm sure today uh, POTUS totally hearts SCOTUS big time and can't wait to heart on a new Supreme Court nominee. As yeah. We're taping today, news has come out that Anthony Kennedy is resigning, is retiring, not resigning, retiring after 33, 35 years on the court. After not enough years on the court. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought you were going to have a quiet summer. It's going to be a long, hot summer. Wow. Like Bananarama said, it's a cruel, cruel summer. Oh. And potentially a cruel, cruel 30 to 40 years in the United States. Wow. You know, so. one of the things about the Supreme Court, though, is uh, that there are nine people on it and people retire from it on a much more regular basis than we we think. So we always invest more in every given one of these than, in fact, we probably should. That said, this is a big one. And millions of people cried out to RBG to keep doing your core exercises. <laughs> Seriously. May stay that woman healthy. stay strong. All right. Uh, the gang is all back together here in the Jungle Studio. Ooh, here with Ben, Susan, and Tamara. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. Missed we, you. Missed you, too. We haven't been together in the same place in, God, two weeks? You know, weeks? It, it is a comment on uh, the nature of our politics <clears throat> that going and spending a week with Israelis and Palestinians is a break. It was so relaxing. <laughs> you guys do look very relaxed. Tame. You know, it's like it, it, the Israelis and Palestinians are uh, – they have tension and anxiety of precisely the type that Israelis and Palestinians always do. There's the same 
issues that are always there. And it's so uh, – it's like conflict comfort food compared to here where every day it's yeah. something different. It's like a big bowl of conflict macaroni and cheese. Oof. Doesn't that sound good? No, it's just refreshing to hang around with somebody else's problems instead yeah. of your own. I right. think that's really all. Did you find that they were looking at us like you've lost your minds more than usual? No, they were looking at us like, yeah, yeah, we know all about that. <laughs> right. Been there. Been there. Get, get over yourself. <laughs> Bought the t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. This week on the podcast, the Supreme Court, you remember them, upholds President Trump's travel ban. Jared Kushner hits the road to drum up support for his peace plan. And chaos ensues as border agents and the Justice Department roll out Trump's order not to separate families at the border with Mexico. Um, so Supreme Court is in the news today, but we're going to talk first about the uh, decision to uphold the president's ban on uh, uh, entry from citizens from a large group of predominantly Muslim countries, as well as Venezuela and North Korea. This is Travel Ban 3.0. Step back with me in the time machine to the early days of the Trump administration when another executive order was rolled out without much forethought. You remember that one. Um, so you're saying there's been a learning process in this administration? We're going to try to answer that question today <laughs> on the podcast, I think. Spoiler alert. Um, so, Ben, th I think there were many people who were not surprised that the court did uphold this particular iteration of, of the travel ban because it had gone through a number of modifications uh, uh, and seemed to be more inside the guardrails of presidential authority. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the judges also wrestle with this issue, the, the justices, with whether or not President Trump's tweets and public statements about the intention of the ban, you know, how to take those into account. Uh, and they divided uh, five to four uh, uh, along, that, along those lines. What was your sort of initial takeaway, both from, A, were you surprised that they upheld the ban, and B, what is, what is your sense of what it means that they were wrestling with these public statements and these tweets? So I don't think that anybody who watched the oral arguments uh, was too surprised by either the outcome or the vote, which did seem to be uh, the writing on the walls. Um, look, I actually think this case is a very hard one. And the reason it's hard is that the uh, the president's authority over immigration, both uh, under the statutes uh, where the delegation to the president is very broad uh, and as an inherent matter uh, are vast. And presidents have done all kinds of things uh, in, the, in the national security realm uh, with respect to forbidding entry of people from particular countries in, uh, in the past. And uh, if it weren't for the president's outrageous statements, both during the campaign and during uh, the pendency of the travel ban and the litigation itself, uh, this would actually be an easy case. This um, Here's the problem. The problem is that the president did those things. He labeled very publicly the purpose of, of, of this action as one that is frankly invidious and inappropriate. Um, and every time his administration tried to implement it in a fashion that was not poisoned by the things that he said, 
he pulled the rug out from under them and said some version of them again and again and again. And under those circumstances, you uh, arises this very difficult question of how much deference does the president get, not only in the national security arena, where the answer we know is a lot, but when you know he is not acting in good faith, but his administration has created this uh, veneer of a legitimate national security rationale for what they're doing. Um, I am not surprised that a th that the majority of the Supreme Court deferred to the president. Uh, I think this is just terrible and terribly damaging policy. Um, and, you know, I think the only thing we have to be thankful for here, and it is substantial, is that the chaos of the early days of the um, – of the tr of the first travel ban and then the second travel ban forced the administration to roll it back to the point that it is not as burdensome for as many individuals uh and that said it's a sad day Susan what, one of our listeners wrote in uh to say he thought the Supreme Court had decided to take the president seriously but not literally and it is this kind of fascinating outcome where despite everything the president said time and time again, as Ben has just recounted, even contradicting people in his administration, it's almost as if the Supreme Court said, yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, so I saw someone else on Twitter, and I I'm, I can't remember who it was, um, coined the term amicus laundering, which I think is a, is an apt one here. And that's that, you know, exactly how, uh, exactly what Ben described, right? Trump says, I'm doing a racist thing because I'm a racist, and this is about a Muslim ban. And DOJ says, no, 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 it's about this. And then Trump says, no, 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 seriously, this is why I'm doing it. And then DOJ says, you know, no, 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 these are these are the rational reasons why you might have it. And, and I think this decision, I, I agree with Ben. It's, it's not terribly surprising, but it is sort of shocking to see legal formalism elevated over such plain and apparent fact. We aren't usually sort of smacked in the face with that level of, of contradiction. And so I, I do think that um, the ability of the president of the United States to uh, to just say in public sort of animus-based policy motivations and for DOJ to then present a plainly pretextual argument that the president again and again says is pretextual and the court to essentially say, no, we still have to sort of um, uh, defer to the court filing. That to me does seem sort of like a seismic statement in a way that that's going to have consequences in lots of other places. And and that's the part that I think it's hard to even sort of fully wrap your mind around the the sort of the full implications of. So is this a case where a conservative majority on the court is just uh, taking a conservative approach that is uh, sort of walling off the broader context, political and societal context, and focusing on what is put in front of them for the sake of conservative principle? Or is this a conservative majority on the court doing this for the sake of staying out of politics and saying politics will resolve this question over time. Our job is to rule narrowly on the law. And can I jump on that question too and say exactly that? And also on what grounds does the Supreme Court say we're not taking into account what the president said? I'm not sure I quite understand that. Right. So, like so it feels like a dodge, but maybe it's not a dodge, so right? So I, I, I think Susan's point 
is is the right one, that this is a question of how formalistic you want the court to be. Normally, when when there's an administrative law question, right? So a a the government takes an action, right? It issues an executive order or a proclamation, and there is an administrative record that supports the proclamation, uh, supports the action. Normally, you don't look behind that record. The government does X and it produces the following material in support of X, and that's the record, and the litigation is over the record. And we all believe in that system because there's value to having a defined set of things that support a government action. So you can look at the action, you can look at what the government put forward in support of it and say, does it do the job? Does it not do the job? Is it lawful? Is it not lawful? Normally, presidents don't put forward a record and simultaneously say, and when I put forward this record, I'm lying. The real reason is that I hate Muslims. And normally, presidents don't run for office promising to do things that are, you know, vile and race baiting and then do them in some form, in some limited form with an administrative record that then makes, of course, no reference to that, but then dog whistles that you know what I'm really doing here. And so when a president does that, and I can't think of another example of this ever, it is very difficult to think, well, should you stay within that box, which is a, a real bedrock principle of the way, we, the way we evaluate government actions? Do you stay within that box or do you, as Susan said, you know, sort of pull away the, the, the curtain and say, you know, I'm going to call bullshit on this. There's something else going on here, particularly in the national security arena. There's a pretty iron principle that you don't do that. And so I think it's a genuinely hard question. How do you respond to, to this as a court? Look, I think there is one place um, in which uh, the difficulty of reconciling this with another case this term does maybe suggest that this is a an ideological conservative court behaving politically and ideologically. And that is the point that Justice Sotomayor makes in her dissent about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which in significant part rested on statements that were made that reflected, you know, religious animus or, or what they viewed as sort of a, as animus against uh, this, this baker's uh, uh, right to deny service to these individuals. And the court gave quite a bit of credence to those statements, including noting that the failure to later disavow those statements was significant. And I, I think those are two cases in the same term. It's a small piece of them, but but they're sort of they're incredibly significant. And, and in my mind, I cannot find any way to reconcile that that's that's not pure politics. I mean, maybe it's that sort of the national security deference is is sufficiently different, but but sort of on, on the pure legal logic, I I don't see how it stands up. Can I there's something else that confuses me along these lines is so the Supreme Court also took this opportunity to overturn the Korematsu case, which was the decision that upheld the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. Which I think every all the justices and pretty much probably most people agree now was just a, a, a terrible thing to do and something clearly the justices were saying 
it seems to me now, the president did not have the authority to do. Everyone except Richard Posner agrees on that. Okay. Well, he's not on the court. So. (laughs) Yes. Much to his chagrin. Um, So my question then is, if that is true, if what the Supreme Court is saying now is we have the authority to overturn a previous decision that upheld the president's executive national security prerogative to uh, lock up American citizens, why wouldn't they have, you know, the authority to kind of as, you know, is to kind of pierce this veil a bit and say, no, actually, we are going to call bullshit in some instances on your national security authority, particularly when we think that it's motivated by racism. So I think that's a little bit apples and oranges, right? So you're referring to the principle of stare decisis. The 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 Supreme Court ordinarily considers itself bound by its own precedent, except for in extraordinary circumstances in which there's just there's a plain error of the law, right? They say history has the, the court of history has proven this wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I take that point, but I, I do think that hits on something. I, I don't see any inconsistency in a court that says we believe we can overturn a prior case. I mean, they clearly can. And also considers itself bound uh, to not sort of pierce the, the deference question. Hmm. As a practical matter, though, doing these – they didn't have to revisit Korematsu in this opinion, right? No, it's kind of a drive-by. Right. So is there a message in that? Like, was that done on purpose and did that help get them to five votes is that they essentially say, this is okay, but – just in case you were wondering, there are cases that go too far. And set we're the gonna, outer limit. So, yeah, set I don't the outer think, limit. Yeah, so I think, no, they're they're directly responding to Sotomayor's invocation of Korematsu in her dissent, right? So they're, they're, um, they're bringing it up in order to sort of bat down uh, her objection there. And, and the, uh, the quote from her dissent is, the court redeploys the same dangerous logic underlying Korematsu and merely replaces one gravely wrong decision with another. So, you know, one of the problems uh, that this case poses for the Supreme Court and particularly for the majority, it doesn't it doesn't pose it for the minority. Um, But, you know, Trump is going to make idiots out of the five. And let's that this is a separate question from whether they're right or whether they're wrong uh, uh, as a matter of law. And as I say, I think there's a pretty good formal legal case for the position that they took. That said, it's only a matter of time, and I think the time is hours and or days, not weeks or months, before Trump, you know, says something triumphant about how his Muslim ban was upheld, right? right? And, and they certainly know that's coming. And you know, and makes clear that the veneer that they allowed him of a respectable or quasi-respectable national security rationale for what he did is in fact just a thin veneer and it's actually covering up something very ugly. And it's just it's only a matter of time before that happens. And you know, one of the questions is whether the court will suffer and how much it will suffer institutional embarrassment at that point. You know, I actually think from a political perspective, uh the court was going to suffer from this decision anyway, regardless of Trump's triumphalism, because we have a highly polarized po- polity. And to the extent that the court in prior years has been able to escape that polarization and and retain the trust of a majority of the American public, a decision like this in the midst of such polarization will inevitably lead to that polarization applying to attitudes toward the court as well. So, you know, this is just a 
an additional um, push down the slippery slope of declining trust in public institutions, which is the bedrock of a democratic system. So it worries me. I mean, what a way for Anthony Kennedy to, what a note to go out on. No kidding. Yeah. Rest well. Speaking of polarization, Jared Kushner's got a peace plan he wants to sell you. <laughs> it's the Jared Kushner Roadshow <laughs> with his buddy Jason Greenblatt. Uh, so Kushner. And they're waiting in the Middle East with bated breath let's just imagine for a minute <laughs> you are you know name ex-israeli national security official who has sat down for every single one uh, of you know how many administrations attempts to forge uh, a peace plan do you, and do you think they were like thanks for the embassy guys but really that's enough <laughs> you don't have to do anything more enter enter stage left jared kushner with his newly minted security clearance and you get to sit there and say we would love to hear what ideas that you have oh do tell uh i'm not being too cynical let's be clear border. maybe you put everybody in one place oh, and then the other mr kushner amazing i think you're all being very unfair to, to jared <laughs> but not incorrect <laughs> now, now hang on let let's i mean he has spent a number of months uh, on a listening tour he's reading wikipedia he's he's learned a lot watching um, Fauda. And he's... You think he watched Fauda? No. No, that would take a lot of time. Um, Too many subtitles. He's... Uh, and he's put together the the, the, the the ultimate deal on behalf of his boss and father By the way, have we seen the deal yet? We haven't no, seen it. No one's seen it. I've seen lots of like one paragraph readouts from the White House saying, Jared Kushner met with an official today. Yeah, actually, one of the things that was interesting about this trip is the fact that the readouts were identical, literally identical, except for the name of the country and the name of the leader they met with at every stop. And no, seriously, it was the same words. <laughs> they were, but but honestly, that is an indication of a well-planned uh, round of shuttle diplomacy. Oh. You don't give it away. You don't give anybody any reason to get upset about what you know what you said to the other guy or how you spoke about the other guy. You keep it even, Stephen. And and I actually thought that was a mark of professionalism. I, I mean, for all the joking about Jared's inexperience, I have to give Jason Greenblatt, the Middle East Peace Envoy, uh, credit because he really has spent hours going around the region and listening. And when the Palestinians were still talking to the U.S. government, he went and met with them and listened to them as well. I, I I actually think that Kushner and Greenblatt have developed a pretty good understanding of everybody's positions. Um, I just don't think it's possible to arrive at uh, an American proposal that will win acceptance from everybody. Uh, and And so from the beginning, the question has been, are they willing to put something on the table that will piss some people off? And if so, who are they willing to piss off? Or... Would they prefer to just sort of check the box by putting something out there that they know, you know, isn't going to fly or is so vague that it's meaningless? So, Tammy, one thing that we talked about previously was sort of the moving the embassy as potentially a leverage point that they were giving up in exchange for nothing. As you see sort of the situation today, would the administration be in a better bargaining position or, or in a more powerful position had they not moved the embassy? Yeah. So if the assumption is that the administration is sincere about wanting to get a deal and that therefore they would want to be able to wring some concessions from the Israeli side, 
no question that moving the embassy is leverage that they could have used and they gave up. And in fact, President Trump more or less confirmed this last December when, after the, the announcement of the embassy new, move and the Palestinians' declaration that they were cutting off contact with the U.S., Trump tweeted that, oh, well, they lose because if they had played the game, you know, the Israelis would have had to pay a price for the embassy move. So he basically, uh, after the fact, announced that, that that had been his intent or that had been his strategy. I think um, it is conceivable that a green-black Kushner plan will contain some elements that would make the Israelis uncomfortable, that would test uh, the solidity, the staying power of the right-wing coalition that's now ruling in Israel under Benjamin Netanyahu. But frankly, um, I'm not sure why they would bother doing that right now uh, when the Palestinians are not talking to the American side. Uh, and it's almost certain that any package they put on the table right now, the Palestinians are going to reject. So, you know, why wouldn't they then uh, put a package on the table that at least one side will say yes to and they therefore have someone to blame? And I think that's, you know, that's both the Palestinians fear and also to a certain extent the option they have left and that they're embracing is their power to say no and just refuse to play this game. But is the audience here realistically the Israelis and Palestinians or is it the Israelis and the Gulf? I, I actually think no one in the region, including in the Gulf, is clamoring for an Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. I mean, that's what I was saying before, like that no one was begging Washington to come up with a new round of negotiations to stabilize the region. OK, I shouldn't say no one. Maybe King Abdullah of Jordan is the one person in the region with an interest in renewing Israeli-Palestinian negotiations right now. But the real issue that is that has seized in the Israeli-Palestinian arena, the real issue that has seized the attention of Gulf governments um, that is creating a political problem for the Israeli prime minister is Gaza, not the broader uh, relationship between Israel and the PLO or borders or Jerusalem or settlements. It's Gaza. Gaza is the place that that uh, created these horrific clashes that we saw in May on the day of the embassy opening. Um, Gaza is the place that is generating violence and destruction in Israeli communities on uh, inside Israel near Gaza with uh, incendiary uh, kites being flown over the border, burning crops, rockets over the border into Israeli communities. That's a domestic political problem for Benjamin Netanyahu. For the Gulf governments, the images of Palestinians storming the fence and getting shot by Israeli soldiers is a political problem for the Gulf governments because of their close relationship with Washington. It's embarrassing for them. So the one place that the region actually wants Kushner and Greenblatt to do something about is Gaza. And I think we've seen some hints in the last few weeks that to the extent that they're cooking up anything detailed, it's about support for Gaza, improving the humanitarian situation, creating new sort of infrastructure projects along the Gaza-Egypt border that will create employment and improve access to electricity and clean water. Um, they're also trying to mobilize international donors uh, to stabilize Gaza and to replace the funding that the U.S. government slashed from the uh, refugee agency. And so I think Gaza is a place where they'll have a plan and they'll get everybody to say yes. 
Uh, but I just don't see how they do that on does a broader that process. Suggest that we're <clears throat> maybe in for kind of reframing the idea of what we think of as American-led peace plans in that part of the world, which is to say not we're coming in with the grand master plan to fix it all, but we're just going to now address crises as they develop? Look, I think there's been an argument around for a long time um, through most of the Obama administration. In fact, there were skeptics who said there's no deal to be made right now. The Israeli public isn't ready for it. The Israeli leadership isn't ready for it. Palestinian public, Palestinian leadership. The best we can do is manage the crisis. And those voices have been there. So, yeah, there's an argument to be made for that. Um, The flip side of that argument is, you know, uh, if you don't work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, if you leave it alone, it won't stay away. It will come land on your doorstep. Um, that it's a conflict that doesn't stand still. It degenerates when it's not being actively uh, mediated. Um, and, you know, this may be an opportunity to, to test those hypotheses. Well, we have one very orderly plan being rolled out. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. President Trump last week uh, issued an executive order stopping the separation of parents and children at the border, which was the result of his zero tolerance policy. Can I just pause for a moment on that segue, yeah, Shane? What? Wow. I, I It took me like the end of your sentence to figure out that that was a segue. Oh, yeah. Always thinking. <laughs> you had to go with me. You had to go with me all the way to the end. Like, where is he going? <laughs> yeah, where is Shane Harris on his journey? Frequently, people who listen to the podcast ask themselves that very question. Where the hell is he going with this? <laughs> <laughs> you love to keep them guessing. Always someplace delightful. Um, <clears throat> we had a great story in the Washington Post last week, uh, or is it this week? It's blurring together recently uh, on the the very chaotic rollout of the executive order. Uh, As it turns out, the Customs and Border Patrol, which has the agents there at the border who are engaged in the detention piece of this, uh, were totally at disagreement with the Justice Department on what was supposed to be done. The Justice Department, of course, which is uh, uh, adjudicating all of these cases of people who are now being treated uh, or prosecuted as criminals when they cross the border. uh, no shock here. I suppose the White House had not given clear instruction on what was supposed to happen. Um, I, I'm struck by the similarities between this executive order and the initial travel ban, which is to say that the president decided he wanted to, wanted to do something. Uh, lawyers slash officials in the White House quickly came up with something for him to sign. And then there wasn't really a lot of thought given to how to communicate what was to be done, uh, to organize that policy, and then to actually carry it out. And it seems like people at the White House just weren't picking up the phone. Um, th- these are events that are almost two years apart. You would, you know, I would think that maybe the 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 infrastructure, the apparatus that is built up in that time, would have been capable of perhaps uh, executing an order, even one that was issued like this on the fly. But uh, apparently not. Look, I think I think the uh, comparison to the first travel ban is apt, um, but even you know, sort of separate and apart from a, from the law, their sort of their emergency policy response is also a little bit baffling. So, you know, I think the the big glaring issue here, and, and the big glaring issue in, in uh, the nationwide injunction, is the failure, the absence of any kind of plan to reunify children with their parents, the absence of any plan to track these children. Right? I mean, it, it was clear that this was not something that was even thought of in sort of a passing way. 
We are now more than a week into what should be fairly described as a crisis, a political crisis for this administration. And yet we haven't seen anything. We haven't seen a task force. We haven't seen a plan. We haven't seen anything that sort of touches on this issue of how are you going to get kids back with their parents? And so, you know, that to me doesn't doesn't smack of a a policy decision. It smacks of an administration that is still almost two years in, completely flat-footed, doesn't understand the executive branch, doesn't understand its obligations, the functions that the government is supposed to discharge in these circumstances. And, and, and even if they were sort of caught unaware by the initial backlash, you know, we're far enough in that we should have seen it by now. So I think there's a, an obvious uh, center of responsibility and therefore an obvious address to blame for that, which is the chief of staff to the president of the United States. Um, it is his job. Who, by the way, used to run the Homeland Security Department, so right. I know something about it. Might this. know a thing or two about how all this stuff works. And right. publicly endorsed this policy many right. times. Okay, but hmm. primarily his job is to understand the president's will and implement it across the executive branch. And when the president is in a crisis and makes a decision about how to handle it, it's his job to get the agencies of the federal government together to implement that that intent. Um, and it's an utter failure. And I think, you know, I, I doubt that it was an intentional failure. I suspect that it's simply that when there's a three alarm fire in the mind of President Donald Trump, it sucks in everybody around him to such an extent that all of their time is spent managing him and none of their time is spent managing the government of the United States. So I actually think this situation is quite different from the uh, travel ban executive order and in many ways much less forgivable, which is not to say that the travel ban executive order situation was forgivable. Um, But I think the travel ban executive order, at least you had the excuse that this was a new administration trying a big, bold public policy action in the first week of the administration. It was literally the seventh day of the, you know. Right, they weren't stuffed up. They didn't know how to do things. Right. And they were, and so they were trying something big and bold right off the bat without, you know, without adequate people or without adequate thought. And you can kind of understand how they just uh, got hit with, you know, giant process failures combined with a malevolent, uh, underlying policy objective leading to this chaotic catastrophe. Here, I, you know, to the extent that some of that stuff is mitigating, here you don't have any of it. Here, first of all, the problem that they're responding to is one that they created themselves. Nobody forced them to separate 2,000 kids from their parents. Nobody forced them to adopt a, 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 a zero tolerance policy that they weren't in a position to actually enforce. Nobody forced them to, you know, start taking into custody people who showed up at the border uh, applying for asylum. These are not uh, these are a series of unforced errors that lead to a over time, by the way, they're not like they didn't all happen last week all of a sudden lead to this this public relations nightmare as as pictures and audio start coming out and then they respond in this very impulsive non-policy driven 
you know, you know, non-process driven fashion in a, in a way that does not actually address a lot of the issues that, that their policy has raised. And they do it despite of having had a year and a half to staff up and put the people in place who actually should be able to to handle a situation. And so I think, you know, I, I, I actually think in some ways it's worse than the travel ban. You know, and I would even make the argument that there are real political consequences for this among Trump's supporters. I mean, I think I've talked about this before in the podcast, but like my dad is my barometer of of sort of the what I think of as the immovable Trump supporter. <clears throat> and talking with him about the crisis at the border when he was here visiting us this past weekend, two things really struck me. One is he thought it was just absolutely unconscionable that children were being separated from their parents, full stop, like it, whatever the policy needs to be. And he's actually somebody who's in favor of pretty strict immigration restrictions. Um, the second part, though, <clears throat> was he said it was illustrative of the thing that annoys him to no end about the Trump administration, about Donald Trump in particular, was that it was chaotic. The, the constant chaos that he sees coming from the tweets, the conflicting statements, the president's behavior. He really kept bringing it back to his behavior. And he was struck by just how disorganized, chaotic, and, and, and how predictable that chaos really was. And I, it made me wonder if, if not so much that his supporters would maybe not turn on him, but, but whether he would go down in their estimation, not because they don't support what he's trying to do on immigration, but because the execution of it is just so, you know, ridiculous and, and laughable. And this is no way in their eyes, as you know, my dad put it, it's like, this isn't how you run a government. So look, I, I take that point And I, I think that would have been true an hour and a half ago, that people really mm-hmm. were getting getting tired of this and, and his base, right? This this was a scandal that appeared to be sort of penetrating his base. Um, with the retirement of Anthony Kennedy, this is a big, giant, gift-wrapped bow to Republicans in the midterms, Republicans that are starting to falter on the president of, this is why you voted for this man. This is why you tolerated this man. This is why all of the things that you don't like that are going on are worth it in the long term. And so I actually think that Kennedy's retirement probably is going to shut off a lot of those feelings because it's and and, and sort of potential um, uprising even among Congress, because we were starting to see congressional Republicans come out against it, you know, because it takes it back to sort of Mitch McConnell's original sin. Yeah, I think that's right. I think to the extent that there's unhappiness among some Republican voters and some local Republican leaders uh, that the White House was chaotic and just not getting stuff done and not running the government. Um, You know, getting a Supreme Court justice confirmed is actually a fairly easy thing for a Congress to do, even a Congress as dysfunctional as this one. And the White House, all they have to do is nominate someone and then they get credit for it. So it's all very, very easy for them. But I actually think that to the extent that this child separation issue was a potential turnoff or maybe a tipping point in terms of revealing the chaos of the administration uh, to unhappy, you know, pragmatic Republicans, um, the White House did a very good job, as it often does, of changing the subject really quickly and making it all about civility and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And once again, uh, Democrats fell right into that. And you had Chuck Schumer speaking on the floor about how bad it was that a restaurant owner asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave a restaurant instead of talking about the policy. Um, and so I, 
I actually think that this is a tremendous vulnerability, even just even with a Supreme Court justice appointment on the line now. I I think the chaos of the Trump administration, the circus of the media coverage of the Trump administration, it's exhausting and it's annoying if you are somebody, you know, in my home state who in Michigan who just wants to get stuff done and and yeah, they wanted Washington to be shaken up a little, but now they want it to settle down and get stuff done. And they're frustrated. Um and and I think that is a real vulnerability for this White House. The Supreme Court appointment is going to ameliorate it. But, you know, if they succeed in getting that done quickly, then it's going to be right back to chaos time again. All right. It's time for object lessons. These will not be chaotic, I promise. They're An orderly rollout of our very object Very orderly, lessons. rolled out, well thought out, carefully chosen. Tamara, you want to go first? Okay. So my object lesson is actually very orderly. I spoke before our trip to Israel about my favorite Israeli jewelry designer, uh, Shlomit Ophir. And of course, on, I think, my second day in Tel Aviv, I went to her shop oh, in Nevi Retail Nevetetic. therapy. Uh, retail therapy, big time, Shane, and uh, got these fantastic earrings. They Those were even on nice. sale. And you can tell they're by the same designer. It really does have, it's, it's consistent. Yeah. In fact, I'm wearing them today with my Shlomit Ophir bracelet, which is also right. a geometric motif. Uh, not all of her stuff is geometric, but uh, it's all online, shlomitofir.com. Very nice, very nice. Um, I will share an object, which is it's not here. It's actually an event that I went to last night, uh, which was the uh, the Foley Legacy Foundation Dinner. This is the group that Jim Foley's family, Jim Foley being the freelance journalist who was murdered by ISIS, uh, set up in his memory. And they give actually awards to uh, journalists. They gave Chris Chivers an award. Uh, they gave Malala an award, a humanitarian award. So it's a pretty cool event. Um, but what actually struck me was interesting. Um, the uh, Jen Easterly also got an award, and she was a counterterrorism official on the Obama NSC and was sort of in the midst of the whole attempt to try and organize out of some real chaos uh, the administ Obama administration's uh, attempts to coordinate hostage recovery policy across the government and do – I hesitate to say a better job, a job at all of communicating with the families. And we remember, you know, the, the really just the awful experience that a lot of families had where even some NSC officials seemed to be threatening them with prosecution if they tried to pay ransoms and really unhelpful stuff. And it was it was a very interesting speech that she gave where she got up and it was it was it was a very refreshing moment in Washington because she, she got up after accepting this award and basically went back and recounted all of the things that they had done wrong and took responsibility for them uh, in front of everyone and said, and here are all the ways that we hopefully have tried to set things right. And there actually is some mounting evidence that this policy has become much more streamlined and is actually starting to work in the way it was intended to. And the families are saying more positive things. So maybe we'll hear about that more in the future. But uh, it was a nice event, but it was also uh, refreshing to see somebody get up there and say, uh, I was in charge of trying to fix this thing. Here's all the things that we did wrong. We're sorry. And here are all the ways that we tried to set it right. You don't often hear that from people in Washington. 
Susan. I have an object lesson as well. Um, my object lesson is the immigration status of the First Lady of the United States. Oh. <laughs> we have spent the past week, 10 days now, I guess, I can't even keep track of time, um, having a discussion about lawful and unlawful immigration into this country in which the Attorney General and the President has weighed in with some pretty harsh rhetoric on how grave an offense it is to enter the United States uh, uh, unlawfully or to otherwise violate U.S. immigration laws. Um, and that reminds me that way back in uh, in 2016 during the campaign, significant documentation was produced that made a that many people are saying uh, raised questions about the first lady's immigration status and whether or not she unlawfully worked in violation of U.S. immigration law. She promised that she was going to show us documentation that it was all fine and good, and all she ended up producing was a letter from her lawyer giving the thumbs up, saying, "No, no, no, I looked at it and it's all fine and good." And so I just uh, my object lesson. Is, is a call to revisit that question because you know what? I agree with the president. It is absolutely important that we get to the bottom of this grave national security issue. Sounds like a job for the Freedom of Information Act. Was that lawyer in the same office as Trump's doctor? <laughs> <laughs> Are they sweet mates? They live in an RV together. My the, object behind the White is House. the Freedom of Information Act. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, long may she reign. It's your favorite <laughs> object. It is. It's my object this week and every week. Very good. Very good. And maybe it'll be your object next week. But that's when we'll have to see you next because that's the end of the show. Oh, we were having such fun. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page I don't know where you would find our show page. Maybe Kennedy knows where it is. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the show, and we appreciate it. Audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Anthony Kennedy, who will be starring as a baritone this summer with the Salzburg Orchestra for a stirring rendition of Happy Trails. Oh, That's very good, Shane. Wow. That's very good. You like that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and also, before we go, I want to say one programming note, a correction from last week. Um, just so we're clear, for those of you who remember listening on books that you didn't like, I didn't understand 100 Years of Solitude, but my husband, who read it out loud, understood every goddamn page. <laughs> I, 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 I got to say, you guys who ragged on 100 Years of Solitude. I didn't. Uh, uh, you know, you and the bombshell crowd – Read it again. One of Ben's favorite it's, books, I think. It is an like. There's a lot of that book that I can recite. Um, I love that book very deeply, and I was horrified uh, to listen to that while I was. Shane away. is Team Joe. Yeah, well, you and Joe can go hang out and have a book party and listen to Sophia Yam playing our theme music. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bada Hasta later. Bum.